Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Illusion of Consensus podcast with myself, Rav Arora, independent journalist based in Vancouver, and Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, an epidemiologist at Stanford. Um, we are really excited today to have on Jeff Childers, who is a uh, very successful attorney based in Florida, who's been on the front lines fighting cases on vaccine and mask mandates. And we greatly appreciate his work. Um, he's he's done tremendous work throughout the pandemic, fighting for our personal rights and civil liberties. Uh, Jay and him have collaborated, so we're excited to get into some of those those cases. Um, and Jeff is also the author of the fantastic Coffee and COVID newsletter, which I read every day, and I highly encourage everyone else to check it out if you haven't already. Uh, it's a great read. Um, Jeff does an excellent job there, just as he does in uh, his legal work. So we're excited to talk about all of it. Jeff, thanks for being here. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. And Jay, what a delight it is to see you again. I mean, it was so much fun to work with you on uh, on a bunch of cases, or, or actually one major case during the pandemic. Uh, and I felt like we we uh, you know we were like we were like brothers after that case was done. It was fantastically fun. Um, uh, but uh, but yeah, and, and welcome. Thanks for the coming on this podcast, Jeff. I, I wanted to. Uh, 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 take the opportunity to let, to let Rob actually talk talk about uh, your work first on coffee and COVID because that that struck me as very different. Like I I, I was introduced to you as a fantastic lawyer. I saw firsthand uh, how great a job you did in protecting the rights of firefighters against the vax mandates in 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 Florida. Um, but then uh, I I I started hearing about about your. Uh, your ability to to draw an audience at at Substack and uh, uh, and as someone who uh, has had a career as an academic and never anticipated having a Substack audience or a social media presence, um, love to hear about that. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I will say that uh, I was you know more surprised probably than anybody that the um, Substack has done so well. I started it. And this is in 2020, so we're talking about March or April, so right after things went down. And locally here, I watched my very first county commission meeting, and I, I don't, you've probably seen one now. I had never seen one before. Uh, I just didn't even pay attention to that stuff. And when I watched it, because they were debating what to do locally about the pandemic, um, I was appalled. I thought this can't be how government works, right? And one of the right before they they uh, implemented lockdowns and the first countywide mask mandate in Florida, one of the commissioners holds up something that looks like a cocktail napkin, and he says, "I've been doing my own calculations." Now, this is a guy you know who, before becoming a county commissioner, was a failed real estate agent. So he's been doing his own back of the napkin calculations, and he says, according to to this, cases are doubling every two days. And within 17 days, the entire county will be infected. And uh, <laughs> on the strength of that representation of his napkin, they proceeded to lock down the whole county and pass the first mask mandate in Florida. And so hey Jeff, I that's, was... uh, that's what I call fringe epidemiology. <laughs> that's real, that's real fringe epidemiology right there. Napkin, napkin epidemiology. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I mean, and, and, and really that to me, I mean, that's the perfect metaphor for the entire pandemic right there. But leave that aside. So 
uh, I'm a lawyer and I don't believe what anybody says, and especially if they won't show me their work. And so, you know, I got on our local dashboard and I downloaded the data and I looked at it. And, and yeah, you know, for the first couple of days, there was like two cases. And then, you know, the next day there was four cases and the next day there was like seven cases. Right. And if you if you extrapolate from that, yeah, you can see doubling. But then the next it was 13 and then it was 17. Right. And it didn't keep doubling. And so the guy was an idiot. And so after I had done all this work to figure this out, I'm like, well, I got to do something with it. And I put it up on my Facebook page. And at that time I had, you know, about 230, you know, friends on Facebook and that's it. And because I, I never even used it. Right. I mean, I'm not a social I wasn't a social media guy. I guess they, uh, Twitter calls me an influencer now. That's my my title. But <laughs> so I started posting i started doing the numbers every few days and i posted that up on facebook and then really the transition to blogging came when i was so frustrated with the censorship and you know i saw so many well-intentioned people who were trying to have a debate about pandemic policy who were just getting shut down you know they would get thrown in facebook jail for 24 hours and then 48 hours and then 30 days and then their account would just be suspended indefinitely. And as a lawyer, you know, I kind of know how to work around those sorts of rules and I know how to say things without crossing the line. And so I, I'm also sort of and, you know, this might be a character flaw, but I'm a little on the sarcastic side sometimes. Just and a little so, bit. <laughs> yeah. And so what I what I started doing was I would take what they said like a New York Times headline or a quote from Fauci or something like that. And then I would make a really sarcastic comment that that said everything I needed to say, but it did not affirmatively say anything that they were banning at the moment. Right. But but you could read in between the lines very clearly. I was screaming between the lines and that worked. And so I was able to evade the censorship using that technique. And and, and not only that, I started to find out people loved it, you know, and um, the other thing I did that I think was different than what everybody else was doing is I, I completely avoided bad news. I focused only on reporting positive developments, right, and, and tearing apart the bad news narrative, because the, what I realized was the market for bad news was completely saturated. There And the market for good news was wide open. And so that combination of a, of a little bit of, of adult humor with, um, with a positive frame was, was really successful. And, you know, and I say that you know, kind of flippantly, and it seems obvious in hindsight, but let me tell you something. I, I will never forget this as long as I live. I was getting, and we're talking about like summer of 2020 and and probably through 2021, every week I would get one or two emails or direct messages along these same lines. They were long, they were heartfelt, and it would start off by saying something like, Dear Jeff, uh, I just started reading your, sub, your, your blog, and uh, I live in New York City, and I've been locked down for, for four months and haven't been outside the apartment, and I was, I was seriously considering um, ending it. And then somebody told me to read your blog and, and that really kind of cheered me up. And so I've decided to give it, you know, a few more months and, and stuff like that. And I mean, I would get those 
like I said, every few days. And it really impressed on me how important, you know, just pushing back against that, that spirit of fear really was. And so after that, I was hooked. I mean, there was, I couldn't stop. I just felt like it was too important what I was doing. Uh, and then I got to Substack. The short version of that is I, I wrote a, a letter to the churches. Um, it, it, was a, it was basically a post called What the Church Needs to Know About COVID-19 and What to Do About It. And after all those, that time, this is in the summer of 21, that's what got me deplatformed. So, you know, they, they didn't mind everything else I was doing about COVID. But when I wrote that letter to the churches, they pulled the plug on me everywhere. I lost my Patreon. Uh, we were um, on a different blogging platform. I won't say their name. And uh, Facebook all, you know, killed me. So I immediately went over to Substack because Alex Berenson had just gone there. And, and they, if they'll let Alex talk, then I figured they would let me talk. <laughs> so that's the story. Well, I mean, they let us talk, which is a, which is a big plus. I mean, I think, Jeff, the, the thing that's striking about that, uh, I also got a tremendous number of messages from regular people during the pandemic. Uh, when you suppress ideas and speech, it really hurts people. And, uh, and, and I think the reason they are looking to you or, or to, to us dur during the pandemic is because they, they, you know, people can have uh, a sense that, that they're not crazy, that there are, there are people that are you know, seeing the same things they are. They don't necessarily always agree, but that, that like they have this capacity to, to, to connect because you know, they, 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 can, they can actually say what they're thinking or, or, or identify with what they're thinking in, in what we're saying, what we're, what we're talking about. I mean that's really important for, for for lots of reasons, but I think uh, fundamentally the 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 way that uh, that social media suppress speech and the story you just told, um, that that really harmed uh, so many people in the public. Yeah, if they had let me talk openly, I, I probably wouldn't be doing this right now. You know, they created me. Yeah, it's their fault. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, it's great that you're on Substack. Like Jay and I and Alex, we had this dinner with the founders of Substack in August. It was a, it was a delight to meet them. And those guys are super committed to free speech. They don't want to censor anyone. They don't want to deem anyone as having the wrong views or fringe views. Like they're really committed to creating the best possible platform where a diverse range of ideas can flourish. So that's why you've been successful. That's why we've had a bit of success. That's why Alex has been successful. Yeah, it's it's a fantastic platform where so many people like yourself who would have never thought of themselves as writers or bloggers or you know people having a newsletter with a large audience are now suddenly succeeding to this degree. So it's fantastic to see that. So, so Jeff, um, I wanted to turn the conversation from from Substack because you you do have a career as a, a very successful lawyer in Florida. Uh, in, fact, in fact, that's how I, as I said, I got to know you initially. Um, and I, I want to tell the audience about a case that we worked on together, uh, where which involved firefighters in in uh, in I think it was Gainesville, Florida, and uh, the, if, if the the firefighters uh, many of them had worked throughout the 2020, and uh, they had many of them gotten COVID and recovered. They when the vaccines came down, um, th many of them decided that they didn't want them. 
they because they, they, they figured that the marginal benefit to them from getting the vaccines was was pretty low. They already had COVID and recovered. They were frontline workers. They were heroes of the pandemic. Um, and the city of Gainesville put in a, a mandate requiring them to get vaccinated. And many of the and, and many decided that they would rather uh, r- rather lose their jobs or sue rather than rather than comply. Y- you represented these folks, right? That's right, and um, I can understand why where the confusion comes from because there were a number of suits after mine in Florida, but we represented all the city employees because the city of Gainesville passed the first municipal vaccine mandate any state any state government office they had the first one and it was a vaccinator terminate policy and they gave the employees thirty days to get vaccinated. This was in July of 21. So they were one of the first out of the gate. And the city of Gainesville has uh, about 2,500 employees total. And I had 271 named plaintiffs in the case. That's more than 10% of the entire city's workforce were were named plaintiffs in my case. And then uh, I want to praise you a little bit because this was not our first case. You had helped me in two previous cases one as far back as the masks. Uh, and that when I first got connected to you, I was, you know, searching desperately for an expert that could just write me a declaration. And you've probably written so many declarations now, you don't even remember them all. And I got connected to you and you immediately said, yes, I'll be glad to help. And you didn't charge me a dime and you never charge any of my clients for anything for your help on any of those cases. And I just want people to know that. Um, that, you know, you were uh, early on enthusiastically willing to help, you know, despite I can't even imagine the time demands that your job puts on you. And not only that, but you've got this, you know, career and a public reputation and everything. And you never hesitated for a second to jump into the crosshairs to help people. So I want to thank you for that. And I want to recognize you for that because. Thank you, Jeff. I mean, for me, it was. was I mean, I felt an obligation, Jeff. I, I felt like uh, there weren't that many experts that were willing to say what was very clearly in the data that the, that the mass mandates were not were not particularly effective, that there wasn't good evidence behind them, that the vax mandates were counterproductive, actually quite harmful, I think. Um, and a lot of experts, I think a lot of people were seeing that, but they were afraid to to speak up, and certainly they were afraid to represent regular people being harmed by these. I mean, I view it as just draconian policies, um, and so I, I, and I, and I couldn't, t- I, I just couldn't. I, I've taken no money for my COVID work because I just felt like I've been placed here for a reason. It's not, it, it's not to like profit from it. Um, so uh, yeah, it was. It, and and I, when I found you, I, like I said, I said at the beginning of the podcast, I felt like we were brothers. I mean, it felt like we were. Uh, you know, you you, <laughs> we had all these conversations. Uh, you know, late at night, early in the morning strategizing about how to how to how to help uh, help these regular help these folks win their cases so that they didn't have to face you know termination because they didn't want a vaccine um especially for a vaccine that that provided them very little benefit they already had covid um but but I'd lo- I really want to focus on that that Gainesville case because I'm going to I I remember um there's some very memorable moments in it for for uh, for, for one um I remember I wrote uh, a, a affidavit for you, and it was a it was a detailed 
brief on the science. And uh, the, the, a couple of things was the like morning before the case or, the, or, the, or, the, or a couple of days before the case was actually set to go. You called me and said, you know, Jay, it, it, I just looked at what the other side is, is, is saying. And they provided not one bit of science in favor of the vaccine mandates, not one word of science, not one word of justification for the vaccine mandate in court. And yet they imposed it on, on uh, you're right, on the city workers, not just the firefighters, um, saying everyone, uh, everyone must get this mandate. Well, if they're, if they're, if they're going to ch- make a, a decision like that, that imposes it, you know, essentially as if it were some regal decree, at, at the very least in court, wouldn't you think that they would pr- prefer some science in favor of their, of their position? So it is a really great story. And I'll probably never uh, have a strategic victory that was as complete as that one was. I mean, it was a total rout for the city. And uh, there's a really interesting explanation of how it happened. They, they were way too smart for themselves. So you're right. I had um, what I was dealing with was the fastest turbo mandate in the country. Right. I had like three weeks to get a lawsuit together uh, before the employees would either get terminated or, you know, put into some kind of disciplinary limbo or something. And I I, but at that point, I had already filed enough of these cases. I did have a little group of, of reliable experts. So I had you and I had, I think, four others in that case, you know, for different points that we wanted to make. And you guys were all going to be witnesses. And I had. Uh, probably half a dozen to a dozen uh, city worker witnesses ready to go. And everything was on our unbelievably short deadline because of this, the short amount of time that we had. And so the, the court gave us a, a Friday deadline to file our witness and exhibit list for the Monday trial. And so, you know, we filed our witness and exhibit list and it was like seven pages long with all these exhibits that we wanted to put in and, the, you know, all of you guys and the city workers that we were going to call and everything. And the city didn't file a witness or exhibit list. They just didn't file it. And so, you know, starting Friday at around dinner time, I started to get real concerned, like, what's going on here? And I had blocked off the entire weekend, you'll remember, to prep with you guys, right? I was going to, you know, ask you the questions and you were going to practice your answers and the whole thing uh, all weekend. And, and I, so I pushed those off to Sunday so I could think about what, what is the city doing? And I spent all sun, uh, Saturday thinking and trying to figure it out and talking to my peers and, you know, my support group and we're brainstorming. And then, I, then we got it. We figured it out. What the city planned to do, and they were trying to ambush me, was they were going to use you guys to prove their case. So they were going to do all, they were going to use my evidence and my witnesses to prove their case because the standard that they were going to argue was this uh, reasonable basis standard, right? Or even if they were forced into strict scrutiny, all they have to prove is that they had a compelling reason and they used the you know least invasive means or whatever. So they were going to ask you, well, Dr. Bhattacharya, isn't it true that the vaccines uh, prevent severe illness and death? And at that time, that was your position. And you were going to have to say, 
well, yes, that's true. And then they were going to argue, see, judge, we're trying to save lives. And that's as compelling of a reason as there is. And so I had a very difficult decision to make. And I was up most of Saturday night struggling, tossing and turning in bed, you know, what's the best way to respond to this? And what we decided, you know, between my midnight ruminations and our Sunday morning conference with the other attorneys who were helping me is the best thing would be to go in with no witnesses and no evidence. And that seems totally, you know, contralogical, right? I mean, how could you even win with no, no witnesses and evidence except I had one key critical thing going for me, which is that having won the mass case in April, the standard that we were using was a strict scrutiny standard. And the first district court of appeal in Florida had just told uh, the city that if they were invading the right to privacy in Florida, the burden shifted to them to prove their you know, compelling purpose and least invasive means. So I didn't really have any evidentiary burden. But risking everything on no evidence is not something I've ever done before. And it was not comfortable. And then having to call all my experts that had already put in so much time getting ready and, you know, for free. And you guys work so hard and telling you, you know what, I'm not going to call you after all. That was a very difficult decision. But, but I made that decision. I and, thought that was wonderful. When we talked, I thought that was amazing, amazing thing. Cause like the, the, I'd been involved with a number of other court cases and I, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but like I, the, that idea of rational basis versus strict scrutiny, I, I learned a lot about in the court in the, you know, in the context of these court cases. It seems to me, rational basis just means if the government says it is, then it is. That's essentially how the courts treat it. Whether, whether it's true or false or anything, it doesn't matter. They just have to have some reason. It doesn't, it doesn't matter whether the quality of the reason, they don't have to justify anything. Again, I'm speaking as a non-lawyer, so those lawyers that are listening, please forgive me. But that's, that was my observation in all the trials I was in. And versus the strict scrutiny, that strict scrutiny standard requires the government to, to at least show their, to show their work. Uh, that seems to me like if you're going to enforce public health mandates, you better have some requirement the government show their work, right? Um, and so when you told me about that, I was I thought that was absolutely a great idea. Uh, and so it was, it was, I hope it wasn't uncomfortable at all talking to me. I was I was thrilled by it. I thought, okay, this is this is wonderful. The government is now actually going to have to prove their case uh, rather than as in many many other cases where they could just get away with saying, okay, we're the government, therefore uh, whatever we think is has a rational base. Effectively, that's how the courts treated it during the pandemic. Yeah. So um, as I recall, you had already blocked aside that time. So you decided to go ahead and sit in on the trial anyway. And I just had you change your name so they wouldn't see you in there and call you. Um, <laughs> and what happened was, you know, we started off the, the hearing. There was one thing I had to prove. I, there was a, one fact that I couldn't get anywhere without. I had to prove there was a mandate. And then the burden would shift. Because the, the mandate invades the right of privacy. I mean, it's an injection, obviously. That's not in dispute. So, so it would be theirs. But I had to prove that. And how was I going to do that without calling a witness or putting something in evidence? So we started off and I said, Judge, thank you so much for this emergency hearing and blah, blah, blah. I said, to save time, Judge, could we just get the, the city to stipulate that 
to, that they have this policy of a vaccine mandate, you know, with termination as the ultimate uh, sanction. And and so she she got it and she said, well, city. And by the way, the city in this Zoom, it was in Zoom, of course. And there was like almost 300 people attending this. It was it was huge. Um, and the city was in a conference room. There are three attorneys and, and and they were all socially distanced and they were all wearing masks. And so it was like looking down a long tunnel and seeing these little figures, you know, getting further and further away with these masks on. And if there's a better metaphor for the faceless bureaucrat, I don't know what it could be than that. And so she asks, uh, the judge asks them, you know, city, what do you, can you guys stipulate to the, the vaccine mandate, which everybody knew, right? We all live in Gainesville. We've been hearing about this stupid mandate every day for weeks and the city wouldn't do it. They quibble, they waffled. And so the judge got a little irritated and she started pushing them. And, you know, after three or four tries, they finally said, well, you know, judge stipulating that the city could change the policy at any time. And the judge is like, I know, I know, but the policy right now. And they're like, okay, yes, there's a vaccine mandate. And so the judge says, okay, Mr. Childers, now you may proceed. Call your first witness. And I said, judge, I'm resting. And she said, what are you talking about? I said, judge, it's not my burden. <laughs> there's a there's a policy. It invades the right to privacy. It's the city's burden. And so then the judge and I kind of got into it a little bit. And I got the sense that she thought I was like pulling some kind of trick or wasting the court's time. So I called. I did have one witness in my pocket, my best city employee. And, and I called her. And that's a whole different story. And it's really entertaining. They tried to get her using her religious exemption letter. And she slew them. But uh, but that was it. And after that, I said, so, Judge, I rest now. And the city had all these giant binders, you know, on the conference table. And the judge like, city, do you have a witness? And I was all ready to object because they didn't put anybody on their witness list. And they said no. And the judge goes, are you sure? And the, the city attorneys were like, no, judge. And, you know, they're flipping through their binders and everything. And. And the judge is like, well, um, you know, you guys are going to have to give me something to work with here. And, and they're like, well, judge, she goes, do you have any any documentary evidence that you want me to consider? And they were like, well, and I'm, again, I'm like, I'm ready to object. And I think I did object. I'm like, judge, they didn't even file an exhibit list. And the judge is like, OK, Mr. Childers, hold on, hold on. And she's like, do you have anything that if I could consider it, you would want me to consider? And they're, you know, not answering and flipping through. And finally, one of them speaks up and he says, uh, he says, yeah, judge, if you look at our, our motion in response to Mr. Childers, um, petition for an injunction, you'll see we cited president Biden who said that the best way to get out of the pandemic is through vaccination. And the judge is looking at them like, like you might look at some weird virus through the microscope, right? <laughs> She's like, what am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> You're reading me something from a motion that you are attributing to President Biden. And even if he did say it, what am I supposed to do with it? And so, and of course, he was wrong. He was wrong, right? He, the, the, vac the vaccine does not stop the disease from, uh, from, from, from a, a vaccinated individual from getting the disease. And the, va the vaccine does not stop you from spreading the disease to others. I mean, I, I got the vaccine in a April of 2021. And then four months later, I got COVID. I mean, it's yeah. not like... You know, and I think a lot of people had that experience. He, President Biden was just wrong at that point. Um, 
there was another element, and maybe I'm conflating things, but like I remember there was an element of of, of at least one of the cases I was involved with you where you where the, where the what the issue was the uh, the vaccine mandates. Uh, there's a very famous ruling by the Supreme Court, this Jacobson ruling, where there was a man I think in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, the, the, in Massachusetts, I think, if I remember right, that that, it, that, they, that the state had required that he get the smallpox vaccine or the inoculation or whatever uh, at the time. And uh, he didn't want to do that. And I guess the, the, there was a $5 fine that he didn't want to pay that because because he uh, if, if he didn't get the vaccine, it's not that they you know held him down and forced the vaccine on him, that what they would do is they would fine him for $5. And this case went all the way to Supreme Court, and the and the and the poor guy lost. He had to pay the five dollars, right? If I if I'm if I if I have this right, um, and he took now, it to the Supreme Court. <laughs> he took it to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court heard the heard this, and the guy the poor, the guy had to pay five bucks. I saw this case cited all over the place to justify the COVID vaccine mandates. Um, and I remember uh, you had a you had a really nice. There was a nice discussion about about the about the history of vaccines and forced vaccinations in uh, in U.S. history in in one of these, including including reference to the, the that that Jacobson case. Um, and uh, there was a, there was a reference to uh, to something that George Washington did in Valley Forge, where he also required all of the soldiers in Valley Forge, uh, you know, waiting on the on the eve of the of some, some you know some major battle. Or, or, or you know, just before preparing for for the upcoming campaign against the British, um, to to be vaccinated, and uh, there were maybe it was this case. I, I'm pretty I, I can't remember exactly, but it, they they were the the city was citing this as evidence that in American history we we are okay. We have this like even the founding fathers were requiring vaccination. And, and Jeff, you had a fantastic response. I, I want you to tell the story of that. Okay. So, yeah, the um, George Washington anecdote was prominently featured in the city's response to my petition for an injunction. And so I knew it was coming. And um, when we finished the part that I told you about before, the back and forth on the witnesses and, and exhibits, I uh, the judge said, are you ready to make your closing argument? And I said, yes. And, and I immediately jumped into this George Washington thing. Um, three, two, one. So I can't, so the city had brought up this whole George Washington anecdote thing in there, you know, prominently featured in their response to my injunction petition. And so I knew it was coming. And when I started my closing argument, I started with George Washington first. And it was it just was awesome. And I said, Judge, I'm going to start with the city's conclusion, because that's where they put him is in their conclusion. This big story about George Washington did it. And I said, Judge, you know, the city described George Washington's policy, at, you know, with the soldiers and everything, like you said, and, um, you know, he's the father of the country. And if it's good enough for the father of the country, it should be good enough for the rest of us. I said, but they left out a few critical facts about that smallpox incident. And I said, and judge, you know, I don't want to, you know, judge people in hindsight or, you know, with the benefit of our modern values or, or whatnot. I said, but um, George Washington 
pass that. He he wasn't the president. He was a, just a general. So it was a military mandate, Judge. I said, and it was 10 years before we had a country. So there wasn't even a United States at that point. I said, and it was like 17 years before we had a Supreme Court. So even if one of the soldiers didn't want to take it, they had no Supreme Court to go to for relief. I said, so it's a little bit disingenuous to, to say that, you know, this is an American tradition because there was no America then. So, but that's not really the critical thing. And, and again, I want to be respectful to our first president. Um, but judge, I, you know, I don't think that we can pass by the fact that George Washington owned people. That's what he thought of bodily integrity, judge. He thought people were property, right? Like a rancher might own a herd of cows. And if the rancher wants to vaccinate all his cows, well, he can do that. Why judge? Cause they're his property. And that's how George Washington looked at all those soldiers. And, and judge, the city is George Washington because they look at their employees like the employees are property, like they're just a herd of cows that they want to get some herd immunity going and they're going to inject everybody and the, the cows don't have any say in it. And judge, I don't think that's right. And oh my gosh, you could have seen, they were all, again, you know, flipping through the binders and, you know, whispering to each other and they were going crazy when... I, mean, I was I, glad I was muted. I was, I was, yeah, I was hooping and hollering at Jeff in the background. <laughs> that was great. I mean, that is such a fantastic, and, it, and it's a very perceptive argument, actually. Because if you think about the ideology of the vaccine mandates and the fact that they're citing this Jacobson case all the time, that George Washington example, well, that Jacobson case was used in some of the most notorious cases as a precedent in, in American Supreme Court history, right? There's a, there, there's a case, I think, called Buck versus Bell. Of, of essentially forced uh, uh, forced sterilization of people that were somehow deemed, uh, you know, uh, uh, mentally incompetent or whatever, sometimes often with very little basis for that. And the Supreme Court said that, uh, based citing Jacobson, saying, "Look, uh, the the state has a has an obligation and a right to be able to force sterilize people when uh, when you can document." Uh, that someone is mentally incompetent, and in fact, there's a very famous or guess, infamous line in in that case of you know th three generations of imbeciles is enough, right? We're saying that look, if uh, the, the 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 state and the government have it have an obligation almost to uh, treat people as if they were uh, just essentially just property, like they could they they have the op the the obligation even in the name of public health to do these horrible things to people, and they cite the Jacobson precedent. Yeah, and that Buck versus Bell case is even worse than you think because if you dig into it, what you find out is that they they were going to sterilize Miss Buck um, for loose morals. She had a bunch of boyfriends, out, you know, not married, and they gave her an IQ test, and she scored low on the IQ test. So it's not like she was a vegetable or something. She wasn't institutionalized. She had a job. She just had a low IQ on their test. And so she was, you know, the government was going to forcibly sterilize her and the Supreme Court allowed it. Right. It's a disgraceful decision. It's never been overturned. Um, and you're right. Jacobson versus Massachusetts was cited in that case. Now, in what is probably the greatest 
amount of legal malpractice that has ever occurred in this country. That Jacobson case has been badly misused during the pandemic. You know, attorneys that should know way better and judges that should know better were citing it for the for much more than what it said. Um, all the all the Jacobson case really said, and this is what I argued in our uh, trial, and and the judge accepted it because it's correct. All Jacobson really says is that there's nothing in the Constitution that protects bodily integrity. That's true. And so if you have a state law that mandates something that invades bodily integrity, you have to also use state law to determine if the government can do it, such as the state constitution. And in in, uh, Jacobson, they looked at the Massachusetts state constitution. Uh, Massachusetts has a horrible constitution for this kind of thing. It's probably the most liberal in terms of allowing the government to to do anything for the common good that it wants to do. You know, the words common good are throughout that state constitution. Florida is on the other extreme. It has one of the best rights to privacy anywhere in the country. And so when they came into Florida trying to peddle this Jacobson stuff using all these, you know, bad sites from all over the country, I had to sh- I had to walk the judge through it. Now this is a 1905 or 07 case, something like that, right? This is old old law. But none of the judges understood it. And so, you know, in your business, right? There have been a lot of egregious violations. Well, in the, in the legal profession, Jacobson was one of ours. Yeah. On, on, um, so staying, staying with the vax mandates, just, and, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, but it's, I think it's really interesting to ask. There were people that were injured by this vaccine. Like, I think it's pretty well documented, for instance, that young men, uh, were, had a high rate of myocarditis or pericarditis, you know, inflammation of the heart, I mean, I, you can we can argue over the rates. Uh, that's not the interesting thing. Just what I'm interested in is the fact that there were vaccine injuries. Rab has written re- really eloquently about this and documented a lot of uh, a lot of sort of uh, uh, real people harmed by these by these vaccine um, injuries, especially young men. Um, now, the if I understand, it's it's very difficult to uh, to, to to get legal redress from courts against. The vaccine manufacturers. There are sort of legal structures to protect the vaccine man- manufacturers from from um, from this. But what about uh, what about like universities and, and other entities that mandated? Are they at all responsible for mandating this product? Uh, I mean, I've he- I've heard counter arguments saying things like, "Well, uh, you know, your university mandated, it, but you don't you're not required to sign up." for the university, you can just go somewhere else. Or your your job mandated, but you're not required to keep that job. You can just go somewhere else. You're not actually mandating. There's no actual coercion. And that, that kind of argument strikes me as disingenuous, right? You have something that's materially, incredibly important to people, a job, a, 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 your ability to take a, to, to, to graduate from college. Um, and you condition the participation on those, on these on 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 these vaccine um, that then require then that leads to an injury, are the entities that mandate it are they potentially responsible or liable? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question, and I think the answer is yes, they're potentially liable, but we're still dealing with a very difficult uh, legal arena here. Uh, let me start in reverse. And so let me talk about the coercion thing, because this is an argument, another one that's been going around that shouldn't be. So for example, uh, the Methodist hospital case in Texas. So one of the first cases where a federal judge upheld a 
hospital's vaccine mandate. The hospital, or sorry, the judge cited that logic. He said, well, you know, you could, you did have an option. You, you weren't forced to take the vaccine. You could quit and go work somewhere else. And the strength of his decision was really on that, that logic. And, and that's absolutely wrong as a matter of law. So there is well-established case law, um, most notably in the area of drug tests. So federal courts for decades have been saying that employers can't force an employee to take a drug test and that a threat of firing someone um, for not taking a drug test is coercion. I mean, they even use that, the, that language. Those cases are out there. I don't know how those cases were not used in the Methodist Hospital case and, the, and all the subsequent cases. And then everybody started citing Methodist Hospital right? All the judges that want to uphold these mandates. And so it just turned into this giant, dirty snowball. Um, but I cited all those cases in my brief in our vaccine case, because the city made the same silly argument and that didn't even come up at the trial. So yes, I agree. A uh, threat of termination of employment is coercion. When you start looking at these school mandates, you have to divide schools into two categories, right? So you have a lot of state schools and state schools enjoy sovereign immunity, as I'm sure you know. So that is a very difficult barrier to overcome right away. So you're dealing with, you know, an entity with sovereign immunity and you have to show that it was something more than mere negligence. And, and uh, in order to get there, you have a huge evidentiary burden, right, to prove that these people weren't just dumb, but they were malicious. And, you know, maybe you can prove that. And maybe that is true. But um, it's going to take a lot of money and a lot of time and work by lawyers to, to get there. So then you're down to private schools and uh, that don't enjoy sovereign immunity, but they still will have the, the coercion argument. Right. Even though, again, I disagree with the coercion argument, but I think the private schools is where the most fruitful ground for lawyers is right now. Uh, and so just, you, just uh, Jeff, it's not just theoretical. There are still, uh, I think, 80 some schools across the country, including so many private schools, including Harvard, I think, that continue to have these vaccine mandates. Yeah. If I were a parent whose child was vaccine injured at one of these schools, I would sue every time. And, and we need to just keep suing until we get a case that wins somewhere. This is think about how the tobacco litigation went, right? There was a long period where nobody got any traction against the tobacco manufacturers. And then the floodgates burst open after somebody figured out the formula. And I think that's what's going to happen here too. I mean, even, even to the, the manufacturers, and I've said this for a long time, I think they're that they will be liable. I think employers, unfortunately, you know, a lot of small businesses and medium-sized businesses are going to be liable for vaccine injuries and it's going to put them out of business and it's going to be very destructive to our small and mid-sized business community, which is, which is bad because we need those guys. Um, the manufacturers, I think ultimately will, we will find a way to get there. And there are some, you know, even recent developments like um, you may be aware of the IgG4 class switch uh, phenomenon. You, the, um, I think it's now almost undeniable that the, the shots were adulterated with 
some DNA, some foreign DNA that shouldn't have been in there. The SV40. Yeah, we, just, we just had a podcast with Kevin McKernan where we discussed exactly that issue. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, inter- it's interesting. I, obviously, this is something that's, that there's still a lot of development. I mean, I, I have to. I confess, I'm a little. I mean, there, I, I still think that it was important for older people to get the vaccine in t- 2021 early 2021, I think at that point, it made some sense. You could make an argument based on the evidence that was there. But if, if I had known about the DNA contamination, uh, you know, I don't know, it would have been, would have been a very potentially different thing. Um, and if, and if, if these companies kept that information from people, um, I mean, I think that's, 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 that's a whole nother, whole nother issue, I think. Well, the question is for you, right? People in your situation who Look, you are a scientist and the way your profession works is, you know, you guys publish studies, you evaluate the strengths of the different studies and you rely on the science, right? And that's, and it's, you call that evidence-based or whatever, uh, but that's how it works. And uh, people can ask questions, but if there's not studies and science behind whatever they're questioning about, then that goes into a different realm. That's not facts or science. That's, you know, hypotheticals or whatever. But, but they didn't tell you. They told you those shots were the most well-tested medicines in the history of mankind. And the people that were telling it were the same people that you as a professional are used to relying on every day to do your job, right? When the CDC says it, and then you can assume that the CDC has a lot of science behind it. And so you don't, you know, question too hard. You don't call the CDC and say, hey, could you send me over all the, the studies that you relied on for that last guidance? I mean, you know, Jeff, I'm pretty good at reading between the lines of these scientific studies, right? So for instance, on the, on the Pfizer trial, it was very clear that they didn't check disease blocking. I, I mean, I, as soon as I read the trial in December 2020, I thought, okay, yeah, they didn't have that as an outcome. And so it really surprised me when the CDC and other public health agencies started saying, oh, we can, we should, we, we, we can, if, if everybody gets this, then the disease will go away. In effect, they didn't quite exactly say that, but they more or less said that. They, and of course, that was the premise, really the premise of the mandates was that if, if everybody gets it, the disease is going to go away because it, because the vaccine stops it. But the, the, I could read between the lines of the evidence, what was presented in public, right? Uh, that they didn't check that. So I, I was actually really surprised. How would they know to say that when the trial didn't check that? So, um, yeah, and but it, but listen, I don't want to stop there. It's way bigger than that. They told us that it was the safest vaccine ever made. They they couldn't know that, Jay, because they didn't do any longitudinal studies. So that was a lie when they said it. Um, they told us that. So, so on, on that point, Jeff, I would say that. Any vaccine, every vaccine in history, you learn about when it's used. The trial gives you some information, but not the full information. So I was very circumspect about when talking about the safety of the vaccines. In the, in the trials, there was some information about, about the side effects. But I said all the time that, that we're going we're gonna to learn things. And of course, uh, I, you know, I, I work with the FDA as part of their, as, as, as a contractor for their vaccine safety work. It's routine that you find some safety signal and then the FDA puts on a black box warning 
or they pull the va- the, the, the the drug or the vaccine. After that's how a, that's many a, deaths? After how many deaths do they usually add that black? I box? mean, you, the, the trigger finger is usually very fast. Like as soon as you see something, you say, "Okay, we're gonna do. We got to do it." Right, because and and the and the trust that people have in the drugs and the vaccines that that are used in in the market generally relies on the 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 willingness of the FDA to pull the trigger on whenever they see even even mild signals. And right, right now, J- J- I was just gonna say quickly, Jade, that the seizures signal in young kids was recently yeah. revealed. That was today January. or yesterday? Yeah, I know you tweeted about it. Yeah, so there was, a, yeah, there was, a, but it struck, it struck me. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, yeah, but wait, I mean, it's like there's so much more, right? Number two, they told us that the mRNA, this brand new gadget that they had come up with that they were going to inject into us, they said it would be localized to the injection site. That was false. It's not localized, it goes everywhere. And they said that the mRNA would be, uh, and I forget what the word is, metabolized or whatever by the body within a few hours. And what they didn't tell us, and they didn't tell you, is that it's not mRNA. It's mod RNA. It's modified RNA. It's, they use pseudouridine instead of the, the natural so, so Jeff, I, I, that That one I actually knew. I knew that in December 2020, I'd read, I'd, I'd read uh, some of the the history of this. The reason why they use pseudouridine, I knew, was because when they don't use pseudouridine, instead they use uracil, it induces this horrible reaction in the body. Right. Well, the, um, the unanticipated side effect, though, is that it made it much more durable. And so yeah. they found mRNA in people now 180 days after the shot in some studies. Okay. So... That, that's the that's not just the spike protein that's you know mrna capsules in their little lipid you know packages that can still transfect more cells as they you know tra- tra- travel throughout I mean, the body we weren't told any of that and your yeah. safety evaluation might have been a great deal different had you known that number one the biodistribution studies show it goes everywhere it goes in the brain it goes in the spleen it goes in your feet your skin it goes in your eyeballs. It goes everywhere in your blood vessels, in your in your heart muscle, right? Had you known that, you might have been a little more cautious in your your advice. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the I think the key thing for me is uh, benefit harm analysis, right? So if there are unknowns about the potential harms, you have to compare that against the potential benefits, right? So for young people in twenty twenty one. As in 2020, the risk of dying from COVID if you're infected was incredibly low. And so the benefit conferred by the vaccine, the, the, the one that supposedly mattered, which is that it reduces the risk of dying or severe disease, was going to be incredibly low. And so any risk at all of some severe side effect as an as a outcome of taking the vaccine would counsel against taking it. That's why Martin Kuldorf and I wrote an op-ed in uh, early April 2021, saying that young people shouldn't be taking this vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas for older people, you know, you have COVID rates of death are much higher, especially for people in their 70s, 80s with chronic conditions, uh, it's much higher. And there's some evidence from the trials that show that you reduce, you, you actually what they, what they showed specifically was they reduced this, the risk of symptomatic infection. But in order to get in order to die, you have to get symptomatic infection. So presumably, there must be some some benefit, right, from that. I, now, I wish that the trials had 
had established that. Of course, they didn't. I saw that, but I thought, okay, it's a reasonable uh, inference from the trial data. Um, th that is a, a is a potentially very large benefit. And then the question is, what are the harms, which you don't yet know, for older people, right? So that you can you can reasonably, I think, say, well, okay, if, if now uh, all this should be in the context of informed consent. You tell a patient. Uh, talk to go talk to your doctor, talk it over with your doctor about your specific condition, see what's right for you. That's normally how we deal with these things. The mandates really just violated that altogether, Jeff. It was as if we took out of the hands of patients and doctors this nuanced decision making and and about and it, you know people with different risk preferences might very reasonably make very different decisions in in the context of that. Correct. Um, the mandates essentially turned it into something where it doesn't matter what what you think, what your particular condition is, um, whether the, the 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 net benefits are are or outweigh are, 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 are you know don't the net harm the, the the net expected harms don't outweigh the net expected benefits. None of that none of that conversation comes in. It's just you take it or you lose your job. You take it or you or you or you uh, don't get to go to school at you know Harvard or wherever. Um, that violated basically every single ethical norm that I knew about in public health. Jay, say about that. First, as you know, I write my blog, which means I research COVID every single day and the developments, right? And I read these studies um, every day. And, and by the way, that wasn't anything that was new for me. Like when I have a case with a medical component, I have to read medical records and science and stuff like that. So, you know, but I've gotten a lot faster. I will say that. And a trend that I've observed is that, you know, in 2021, you couldn't publish a paper that was critical of the vaccines. And in 2022, you started to be able to, to publish case reports and, and studies that were critical of the vaccines as long as you included magic words. And, and initially, the magic words had to be the vaccines have been found to be safe and effective. Okay. So as long as that was in your study, then you could go on and say, you know, and all these people had heart attacks and, you know, blah, blah, blood clots and so on. Well, that language has been, been evolving, right? And then it started to get qualified. You know, they would say, well, the FDA has stated that it was safe and effective. So they're not, they're not saying it, they're saying the FDA said it, right? And then it got to um, you know, that the you know, that the vaccines have been found to be safe and effective. Uh, you know, in in groups that are most likely to benefit from it. And now now what they're saying is uh, the risks, the FDA says the risks outweigh the benefits. That's the, the tagline that I see most now. So we're not saying the risks or the benefits outweigh the risks. We're saying the FDA says that. So there's been this, this kind of wholesale retreat from making representations about these these vaccines. And I think a lot of it is based on number one, developing science and uh, however cautiously and, and however gatekept it is, gatekept, whatever that the expression. And number two, I think people are having a lot of anecdotal personal experiences. Yeah. And I mean, I, I do think that, that um, just looking back, it just looks like a, a vast crater where public trust used to be right. That, 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 that sort of like, uh, uh, slow unraveling um and it, and it was slow it took a long time and, and so and, and if you were out ahead of it you were saying okay that for instance in 2021 saying that the vaccine doesn't stop you from getting covid or transmitting it especially doing that in court 
that's like a transgressive act for for an expert like me, right? It's it's somehow I'm I'm being uh, skeptical of this vaccine that 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 public health has deemed like you know the the, the second coming of Christ or something. Right. Um, and and it was it was really it was really kind of uh, uh, I mean you know it's 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 hard like because science does have a sociology to it, and if you speak up against its yeah, it's 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 basically it's dogma. You're going to face the the wrath of the of the the high popes of science. I mean, I face that personally, um, and and so I I think that's what you're reading, what you're seeing is you're seeing the dogma play itself out. Uh, but then evidence comes in, and slowly the the dogma unravels. And and if you're the problem is being too far ahead of it. Yeah, well, I'm. I really resonate with um, your description of you know smoking crater where trust in public health used to be. Um, I was not an anti-vaxer, so and I'm educated. I have a graduate degree from a you know top public university. Um, I, in fact, I, I had a lot of science in my undergraduate. I, I have a minor in the history of science. Well, Jeff, I mean, on the cases we talked about, I knew you had some science. So, like, I could, I could, I could tell you're very sophisticated and read. You would read my, uh, my, my affidavits. And you had really intelligent questions about about what what I wrote. I mean, I think that's that that's that was clear to me from from the moment we first started talking. Yeah, I, thank you for that. Uh, but where I was going with that is, um, all my kids had all their childhood vaccines. Um, I'm sure I had mine. I probably had a tetanus shot the last time the doctor said you need a tetanus shot. I didn't even ask him why or what the risks were. It never even occurred to me. Um, but then they talk a lot about these anti-vaxxers, right? The devils, the anti-vaxxers. Well, I, I ran across a new term that I was unfamiliar with in the Washington Post probably last week or the week before. And I, and I realized that's where I am now. And the new term is never vaxxer. I'm not taking any more shots. I don't care. I'll take my chances with, you know, whatever I catch. I'll go on the internet and read about some, uh, you know, garlic <laughs> press with, you know, mix it with <laughs> rutabagas or whatever. I mean, I, I, I guess I'm not there yet, Jeff, myself, because uh, I mean, I, I, th I think I can read the literature and try to read, at least try to get some sense of it. But I will read the literature much more carefully before I make decisions about those things. Um, whereas before I would take some things on trust because I'd seen, you know, uh, uh, the, the, these entities like the, the FDA or the CDC that it's, you know, I've worked with them. They have some great scientists there, but the problem is like the institution as a whole no longer has, uh, the benefit of the doubt in my mind. And I think that's true for many, many, many people across the, across this country. I think you told me one time that where you used to, when you've got a new study, you would just read the conclusion. But now you. I, mean, I, 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 no, I so what I do is I go to the tables. That's what you, I always. You do. look at I, the data now. <laughs> yeah. No. No. I, no. I've, this is always my practice. With, with always been. So mm -hmm. I go to the tables, ask myself what what do the tables say, and then I go to the conclusions and see what the authors think the table said. Um, and I, and I, I still I still do that because that's I, I I mean that's the only way really you can read between the lines. You have to like come to your own conclusions about it. But there are like things you have to, you take as on trust, right? So like did they did they ask all the like like in, in any scientific study there are things you take on trust. Did they actually do the things that they say they said? Are the tables themselves accurate representations of what they found? And uh, things like that, right? Just like basic things that science requires for me to know. But just 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 
take as as uh, essentially on faith. Um, I, I'm not I'm not going to ask. Are they faking the data in every scientific study I read, or science can't work? Right at some level, there's trust involved, um, but there is less trust I have. I find when I'm reading these papers, I find myself asking questions about the tables, about the data that I wouldn't previously have done simply because of that lack of trust. Right. So it's I, mean, even... I, still, I still never trusted. I mean, I just I mean, just so we're clear, like, I, I never really trust the authors. I always read the tables and see if I can if, if I agree in the interpretation. And I try to come to my own interpretation before I read the conclusion. Uh, so I don't get biased by what the authors think they found. Um, that's that's always that's always good. I, I think I still think that's good scientific practice. But like but there's a level beyond that. Do I trust that they actually did what they said they did? Are they are they hiding things from me? What are they hiding from me? I find myself asking questions like that that I didn't previously ask. Does, does it trouble you in a broader context that um, the government was clearly able to curate all of academic literature for probably two years? That influence that did you understand there was that level of influence? Yeah, I mean, I I I I knew that uh, what was happening the last two two three and a half years was tr- was completely out of line with my two two plus decades of experience in science. It felt uh, it felt like there was uh, sort of outside pressure in journals and, and elsewhere uh, to to not say the things that you weren't supposed to say. Right now, I'd seen that before in in eth- like in there's there's sort of I think there's like two competing norms, Jeffs. Like on the one hand, there's the the norms of science that require there to be basically complete free speech. Like if I have a question and I, and you have a question and you have a hypothesis and I have a hypothesis, we can ask those questions, we can do those hypotheses and uh, put forward those hypotheses, and then have a uh, you know have a have a an experiment that decides between us about who's right and who's wrong. That's how science works. There's and any suppression of speech around that basically suppresses the scientific process. That's what that's one norm. That's the norm I lived in with most of my career. That's what it looked like to me. Um, and, and then at the same time, there's also this norm of public health. Public health actually requires some level of unanimity in messaging. It absolutely does. So like if some someone from Stanford Medical Medicine set, goes out and says, you know, smoking is probably good for you. Well, I mean, I've done, I've just committed a sin, Jeff. Like, I can't do that because a the the evidence doesn't say that in the literature. That would be a violation of my obligation to to accurately say what I find in the evidence. And then b I'm harming public health by giving this uh, this like impression to people that they're like prominent people that that think smoking might be good for you. Smoking is not good for you, right? So it's and so there's this ethic in public health of like not really questioning those kinds of things. But the ethical basis of that, I always thought in my head, was there is this tremendous evidence in the scientific literature that makes it an act of uh, sort of like a, a transgressive act, that, that an irresponsible transgressive act to say something that's not in the literature on something of public health. The problem here is you have new virus, a new vaccine, a, a whole bunch of science happening in real time, consensus changing, you know, daily about fundamental things. And somehow public health decided that it had the the uh, moral authority to take on itself this idea that if you contradict it, you are contradicting, you know, uh, something so fundamental that you're going to harm people. 
it was just a it was it was just a lie. Um, and and I think all of those different norms got tangled up with politics and money and everything else, and it, it was a disaster. And one example I'll give you, ironically, the the example that you used, there were a number of studies showing that smokers did better in with COVID, that they had less serious cases. And and I think one of the studies that I read that that uh, proposed a mechanism said that it the the nicotine blocks the ACE two receptor so that the, the COVID can't bind. Right. But you still couldn't come out and say smoking's good for you to ward <laughs> off COVID, could you? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I saw those studies, too, Jeff. I was I'm not sure. I, I mean, you know, it, t- it takes a lot of work, a lot of science to convince me about some things. Uh, most things, actually. It's, I'm going to I'm only going to come to my mind what, what you know, I, I still don't know if those studies are right. So I'm not going to I, I mean, I, it's not the, the science. The, it's not the public health norm that vetted me. It's the I haven't yet decided if they're right or wrong. Kind yeah. of, kind of and I'm not carrying a banner for that. I'm not a pro smoker, but um, let me ask you about this because I think this is an under discussed aspect of the the loss in trust. I mean, you know, when when you see these articles uh, wringing their hands about the loss of trust in public health, um, they, they you know always talk about uh, the poorly poor messaging. Right? That's that's the current explanation for what happened is that public health poorly messaged some aspects of the pandemic early on, which, you know, lying, I guess, is poor messaging, right? <laughs> that's, just, that's fair. But um, there's another, there's a whole other aspect, and that is the arrogance of the the elites or the, the so-called experts, right? Well, Jeff, so I, I, I give think... give you an example. I want to give you my best example of that arrogance. So, First of all, they shut down misinformation. So you couldn't talk, you couldn't go on Facebook and upload a meme that says, you know, if you take the shot, you're going to die. Okay, that was just off the table. And they pushed all the doctors, all the white coats to go out on social media and advocate for the jabs, right? And to, to say, whether they believed it or not, they were told, go out there and say, it's good for you, go take it. But, but listen to this. I tried a million times. There was nowhere to go. You couldn't go to any of those doctors. You couldn't go to, you couldn't call the CDC. There was not an 800 number to get a question answered, right? So if you wanted to know, hey, uh, why does it stay in the injection site? Nobody would answer that question. You'd be referred to the FAQ on the CDC website. I even, I, I wrote about this in 2021 and eventually the CEO of a major Florida hospital, you would recognize the name instantly if I said, reached out to me and he said, send me five questions and I'll get the answers. And so I pulled the, my readers and everything and I got my five questions together and I made them, you know, read well and be answerable and, you know, that kind of thing. And I sent them to him and guess what happened? Never answered them. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that 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 arrogance, um, you can see it at the very top of the of the public health profession during the pandemic, right? You know, Tony Fauci, for instance, very famously, at one point, I think it was an interview or, or maybe even in Senate, Senate uh, in, in, the, in his testimony in the Senate, he's, he, he, he actually said that if you question me, you are not simply questioning a man, you are questioning science itself. I, I mean, that if that's not emblematic of arrogance at the very top, of the scientific professions of, of public health, I don't know what would be. Jay, um, and where did this place, come from? Where where is the idea that you can't ask science questions? Where did that come it, from? 
I think it's I think it's a conflation of that public health norm of unanimity messaging that if you speak out against some, what public health is saying, you are doing a transgressive, immoral thing, with the norms of public of of science. Where of course you should be able to ask questions. I mean that's the whole basis of how science works. Is like you know I mean I I remember in medical school my uh, I, one of my very favorite professors told me look you know Jay half of what we're teaching you is wrong. And, you know, of course, the, the natural next question, I'm like, wait, 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 which half? And he's like, well, I don't know yet. I mean, the problem is like science does actually make revisions in its knowledge. It's part of how it works is we we ask questions, we learn new things. It's it's we, so all of, a, of what we hold as scientists in our knowledge base, all of it is provisional, some much less provisional than others. Like there's, you know, I'm not going to sit here and question gravity, but I, but I do think that like there's a, a lot of. A lot of people don't understand this, like especially when you have a new disease, that there, there isn't a science that has the dogmatic answers that that are never going to be revised. We're going to learn new things, and every science, including me, I'm going to be wrong about things. That's part and parcel of how normal science works. If if we don't let scientists dare like give hypotheses that turn out to be wrong, science won't advance. So beyond that, beyond the you know these sort of high in the, high in the sky principles. Let's talk about informed consent. Is there a role for a patient to ask questions about a proposed course of treatment in the concept of informed consent? Absolutely. In fact, that's vital to informed consent. Uh, that, in fact, that's what I always thought was true in, uh, before the pandemic, that, that all of medicine and all of public health was and you read the you read the like you know the, the these like ethical statements by public health authorities before the pandemic and they have informed consent as as a central ethical pillar. You can't ask questions now. Well, that that violates informed consent. It absolutely violates informed consent. And, um, and it shocked me. And the mandates themselves also invented, violated informed consent. Like now we have coercion piled on top of we can't ask questions about the thing you're coercing me to take. Um, that's just wrong, right? And that's even if you are in favor of the vaccines, it's still wrong. And wasn't it founded on the premise that the experts know better than you do what you should do? I mean, like, you know, I, I have a, my wife is a doctor and she's a terrible patient. She goes to the doctor and like has 50 questions for every, every single thing. Right. Um, but you know what? That actually makes her a better patient. I don't think that's not actually, I mean, it's in many ways, like she, she ends up understanding the thing that the doctor's telling her to do much better than I do when I just take it on faith from the doctor. And I, you know, I will go do some due diligence to honestly, just, just also even before the pandemic, but now I want to do a lot more. Um, and I, I don't, I think that that's a fundamental human right, right? We are trusting physicians to give us our, their best sort of sense based on their professional training, their experience and so on. Uh, about what uh, what 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 I should do in this health situation I'm facing, right? And um, the, the 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 job of the physician is to is to educate the patient to some extent um, with honest answers to the questions the patient has. Uh, the The idea that physicians should be recruited essentially as essentially to like say, look, here's what what public health is telling us to say, and you must obey public health. That is anathema to what a public, uh, what a doctor's role actually is. Uh, I, I don't know if you ever followed the debate over AB twenty ninety eight in California, Jeff. It was it was a law that was passed by uh, the state legislature in twenty twenty two that said that if a doctor 
uh, gave advice that contradicted public health, they could lose their license. Um, the courts actually stopped. This was fantastic. Like uh, a, a, a some friends of mine sued the uh, the, the governor of California, Army. and a court found that it violated the First Amendment rights, essentially, of, of doctors. Um, but it's more than just First Amendment rights of doctors. What it did is it violated the doctor-patient relationship pretty fundamentally. It made doctors a agent of the state with a, a fiduciary responsibility, essentially, to the state and to public health rather than to the patient. Right. If the CDC is the final answer to all medical questions. What do we need doctors for? <laughs> and not just I mean, to implement the CDC's guidance. Right. Well, Jeff, I've taken uh, taken up 75 minutes of your time, and it's been a fantastic conversation um, with you. I, I'm so glad you, you managed to come on. I actually had other things on our list, but maybe we can save this for another podcast. Uh, focused on on uh, on religious liberties and the legal system because uh, yeah I, you know you and I both share a, a common faith and uh, and and, uh, and I'd, be, I'd love to hear your comments on that but uh, why don't we save that for next time thank you Jeff for for coming on you're, you're welcome and let's do that I think we could fill up an entire podcast just on that topic that would be great and that we'll tease that for the listeners so okay. part two to to be a I- Absolutely. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. Uh, this has been this is uh, Professor Jay Bhattacharya for the Illusion of Consensus podcast. Until next time, thank you.